Welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schimpoli, News Director at APPA. Our guest on this episode is Dave Meisinger, CEO of the Connecticut Municipal Electric Energy Cooperative. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. Sure thing. So, Dave, uh, just to, uh, to get our conversation started, wanted to know if you could describe the Connecticut Municipal Electric Energy Cooperative for listeners who may not be familiar with it. Sure, that'd be my pleasure, Paul. Um, so Connecticut Municipal Electric Energy Cooperative, or CMEC, um, as we refer to it, is uh, we're a joint action agency formed in the late 1970s by a group of municipal electric utilities here in Connecticut. Um, we first started to provide all requirements, wholesale power supply services in 1980. And we also provide the typical range of support to our members in terms of legal, regulatory, legislative support, member services around things like you know, conservation and load management or retail customer facing programs relating to um, you know, renewable energy or decarbonization, beneficial electrification, things like that, um, you know, aspects of the industry that most of your listeners are probably familiar with. So at CMAC, out of, uh, we have seven municipal electric utilities in the state of Connecticut. Six of those are full members of CMAC, which includes Norwich Public Utilities, Groton Utilities, Jewett City Department of Public Utilities, Basra Light and Power, and the third and second taxing districts of um, Norwalk. We also are the um, wholesale requirements provider for the Mohegan Tribal Utility Authority that operates its own utility on Mohegan Tribal Reservation lands. And one of their larger uh, retail customers is the Mohegan Sun Casino. So you know, that's a brief overview. Our, our combined load is roughly 5% of the total retail load in Connecticut, which puts us about a little over 1% of the load within the ISO New England footprint. Personally, I joined CMAC about three years ago in January 2020 which means I had a um, couple months before the uh, challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic kind of hit, um, hit us head on. And I'll just add that we have a, a lean uh, staff of about 27 employees who each work very hard every day in support of our members and uh, their communities. Just curious, you know, you, you pointed out the the timing in terms of your arrival at C, uh, in terms of your current position and in, in, in COVID. How how big of a challenge was that in terms of you know you're you're adjusting to to being the the leader of the organization and then the pandemic. It did present a challenge that certainly I wasn't aware that I'd be facing at the time that I, uh, you know, accepted the position. Um, you know, I had, like I said, about ten weeks of sort of, you know, at the time was considered normal uh, in-person um, works work time with with my staff, and so we got to know each other a little bit. And obviously, you know, I moved here from out of state and was um, tackling a lot of challenges, just kind of getting my 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 hands around um, everything that CMEC is doing. And um, you know, getting to know my staff, and then obviously, when you know, mid March of 2020 hit, and like many organizations, um, a lot of our staff started working um, re- remotely, basically on an exclusive basis. That certainly added to some of the challenges, but it was you know, we had a very strong and resilient staff, and uh, we've worked a lot on um, you know, just making sure everyone was capable of working from home, um, doing the, the full extent of their work, and just between some some good computer support systems that we already had in place and use of you know tools like Zoom that we're all now pretty pretty used to. It, it was uh, maybe not a completely smooth transition, but certainly one that we worked through and were able to accomplish um, you know all of our key goals despite some of those um, additional challenges. I want to turn to some recent news. You know, as you know, in December, CMEC announced that its 7.4 megawatt fuel cell power generation project, which is on property leased from the U.S. Naval Submarine Base in New London, Connecticut, achieved commercial operations. Could you provide additional details on this project and the benefits that will flow from it? 
I'd be happy to. First, I just want to mention that CMAC and our um, one of our members, Groton Utilities, who provides retail electric service to the Navy at that subbase, have been. We've been partners with the Navy for decades at the subbase. We work hard with all of our members and you know their largest retail customers just to ensure that they're reaping all the available benefits of being um, a public power customer. Um, in, the, in the case of Groton Utilities, that certainly means we've done a lot of work with the subbase to ensure that their needs are being met to the extent that um, we can reasonably do so. So as far as the fuel cell project that you asked about, which is the latest example of that partnership we have at the, with the Navy, our staff worked years ago with the Navy to develop a, a template for a lease that allows us to actually rent real property from the Navy and then provide benefits or often sometimes some forms of non-monetary consideration as rental payments. And it's kind of a contractual relationship that allows us to help the Navy achieve some of their goals in a cost-effective way because it maximizes the value that the Navy can obtain from, from any dollars that we spend. So in this case, we leased a one-acre parcel of land on the, on the U.S. Naval subbase back in 2014 when it was originally uh, designed to be a project that would have some backup um, oil and gas fire generation units. In 2017, that project transitioned to the 7.4 fuels, uh, 7.4 megawatt fuel cell project that you mentioned. We, we partnered with a Connecticut-based developer who owns that project and with whom uh, CMEC has a long-term offtake power purchase agreement. It's a project that faced a lot of different types of challenges, including with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, but ultimately we were able to achieve commercial operations last month. As far as benefits that you, you asked about that we anticipate from the project, we expect, certainly from the Navy's perspective, having 7.4 megawatts of essentially baseload generation on site will further enhance uh, the reliability and resiliency of the service that we and ultimately Groton Utilities provide to the subbase. It probably goes without saying that um, you know it's very important to the Navy to have a resilient power supply to support the operations that it's conducting there. During normal day-to-day -day operations, um, the output of the fuel cells actually become just part of CMEC's overall wholesale power supply portfolio. However, in, if there's ever um, like a grid disturbance or some other type of event which might potentially impact the provision of electric service to the subbase, what would happen in that instance is that the fuel cells are actually capable of switching over to directly providing energy to the internal distribution system within the subbase. And there, that means there'd be um, a little over seven megawatts at uh, the Navy's disposal to add to any other on-site generation resources they may be operating in order to make sure they can maintain operations, you know, really at all times. And the the, the interconnection of all of those facilities and systems within the subbase is going to happen eventually as part of a larger microgrid project that the Navy is undertaking with a third-party contractor. And for which is kind of part of our support of the Navy in this project, we help secure a fairly significant grant to help support that, that Navy project. So, you know, the Navy has been great to work with. They've been a very good and patient partner, and we believe they stand to reap a lot of benefits from this project as they, um, you know, continue to kind of deliver on their own mission that, that they're um, working toward on the subbase. And this type of thing helps us allow, you know, large kind of anchor tenants here in Eastern Connecticut, like the subbase, stay here and not only, um, again, do, do their part and do, do their core business, but also help bring all the support and um, and benefits to our state and our region 
which with respect to the sub base, you can't really overstate how important it is. And then finally, I would just add from CMEX owns perspective, you know, we are adding, as I said, um, 7.4 megawatts of baseload generation in a, uh, t- as part of a 20-year power purchase agreement. So that's allowing us to achieve you know, some level of wholesale price stability as part of the project. And um, here in Connecticut, these projects actually also qualify for a class of renewable energy credits. So I think you could argue that's also helping us do, um, it's a small step forward in terms of addressing the impacts of climate change um, you know, here in Connecticut and throughout the New England region. And you mentioned uh, with respect to the discussion of the microgrid, there was a grant. What, what, I was just curious, where, where did that come from? Um, it was part of a state program that was in effect, I guess, in, in around the 2016 to 2018 timeframe, if I'm, if I'm correct in recalling that. Okay. It was, um, it was just a state program that provided for funding for certain types of, of, of projects, which this, uh, we were able to demonstrate that this microgrid that the Navy's contemplating satisfied those requirements. And so we're in the process of just kind of finalizing, finalizing some minor changes to the grant which will ultimately be, I, I presume, awarded and will help will help fund this uh, relatively large project that the Navy is undertaking, um, again, to, to put in a larger microgrid as part of their overall distribution system. So I just want to turn to the financial side of things. Um, it, you know, as you know, in recent years, CMAC has, has maintained strong credit ratings. So I wanted to know if you could elaborate for our listeners how CMAC has, has achieved this. Sure. I, I agree. We, I think we do have a very solid track record in, in regard to credit ratings. Um, CMEC and also we have a sister transmission uh, company organization who have each uh, consistently achieved a rating of AA3 from Moody's for over a decade. And in 2020, um, Fitch actually upgraded us from a historic A-plus rating to AA-. And actually at that time, they also updated our outlook to, to stable. I think there's a lot of solid, you know, positive considerations that our rating uh, rating agencies, you know, to maintain or or improve our our ratings. Um, just to name a few, I think we have pretty strong revenue defensibility, given you know that we have long term full requirements contracts with our um, with our members, and our members themselves have very strong credit quality, mm-hmm. um, especially those who are representing the largest portion of our load. So those are pretty big factors. Our contracts allow us to um, essentially adjust the amount that we recover from our members, and our members themselves are able to adjust their rates without, you know, basically at the municipal board level versus um, requiring any type of third party or state agency type of regulation. So that gives us a lot of flexibility to to do what we need to do when we need to do it. Um, we also have a pretty good liquidity cushion. We maintain low operating costs, low overall cost of service. If you compare us to other retail electric providers in the in the state or in the region, and um, we've also done a good job of reducing our debt burden. We proactively advance refunded um, a lot of our outstanding debt in 2020, which we've now been able to pay off, and that's saved us about a million dollars a year in annual interest savings. The rest of our debt we actually just paid off um, a couple of weeks ago following the divestiture about a year ago of a large natural gas-fired peaking power plant that we owned for about 15 years, but ultimately divested to a, a third party um, at, the, at the very end of 2021. And I think all of those activities, or that one in particular, significantly reduced any uncertainty associated with you know potential future capital spending we might have to um, engage in. More a little more recently, um, our board and um, a subcommittee, as well as our general counsel, have done a really good job 
starting even a little bit before I arrived and then going into the last couple of years, making some improvements on things like internal controls and policies and procedures and standards that have helped us from a governance perspective in the eyes of the credit rating agencies. Finally, I would just point to our ability to kind of adjust in real time as our load fluctuated during the pandemic and the ability of our members to kind of stay current on um, the amounts that they owed us for, for wholesale power. So a lot of factors that go into those ratings, but I think we've done a good job of, of maintaining or improving on most of them. And um, I guess finally, I would just add, it doesn't directly impact our, our credit rating at this time, but we just received an updated ESG score from Moody's a couple of weeks ago on um, you know the overall environmental, social, and governance factors that they and a lot of others are focused on pretty heavily. And we were pretty pretty pleased that our overall credit impact score was was basically at a at a two, which was um, out of I think 259 similar entities or issuers who've been rated recently. Only three of those, or roughly one percent, had a higher overall score. And our individual scores in the three categories were also at or above uh, the vast majority of others that were uh, you know similarly situated entities. So. You know, like everyone else, we continue to face some some pretty major mac- macroeconomic factors, you know, like inflationary pressure and rising energy and fuel costs, slower economic growth than some had predicted in the past. But I think overall, we're, um, we're excited by the way that the credit rating agencies have looked on what we're doing, and we hope to continue with that um, success going forward. So I wanted to to turn to the the subjects of uh, energy storage and renewables, which is, you know increasingly you're seeing a lot of projects where there's there's storage paired up with 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 solar projects. So I wanted to kind of combine those two topics into one question and and if get your get some details from you in terms of what CMAC is doing with respect to renewable energy and energy storage. We, there's definitely something that we're focusing on, as I'm sure um, all public power entities are and, and have been for a while. We, um, I'll start with maybe more most recently. Um, just last summer, we actually entered into a long-term power purchase agreement with um, a company called Great River Hydro, who owns and operates what I believe is the largest fleet of hydroelectric plants here in New England. And that transaction was kind of a a win-win for us because it allowed us to kind of enhance the amount of carbon-free energy that's in our portfolio, but also at the time helped us kind of mitigate the the very volatile wholesale market prices that we were seeing and forecasting, which um, really helped us to kind of achieve two goals with that arrangement. Um, We negotiated a fixed price for what is essentially um, about a 15-year term of, of a power purchase agreement where we get some some fixed energy and also some peaking energy during the hours when demand is highest and, and typically prices is, is highest as well. So seven months into that relationship, we're really pleased and um, and satisfied with the results that we've achieved there. We do have a number of other what we call projects that are definitely geared toward you know renewable energy storage or or maybe more generally decarbonization. You know, you mentioned so- solar and storage, and we're always considering new new opportunities to, to combine those. About five years ago, we did actually embark upon a a twenty year project with um, which is which is actually now owned by Tesla on the other side, where we have I think seven different community solar gardens in our various service territories. I think representing about sixteen megawatts, and the two largest of those also have batteries, which we can typically discharge uh, and do some peak reduction when appropriate. Or um, you know, based on on load and pricing, so that's that's been a good project for us for the most part. You know, other things we've done in recent years um, in this category, 
We are, we're a longtime minority owner, as are many other public power entities in New England, of, of a piece of a Hydro-Quebec transmission line that allows parties to import hydropower from Canada and, and at times even export energy back into Canada. Um, so that's been a successful project to support you know, the, the import of, of renewable energy into the ISO New England footprint. And we also are a long time, or our members are um, long time recipients of uh, you know, allocations of, of essentially preference power from the New York Power Authority, which has been a great low cost form of renewable energy for, for years already. And we're also just now working to get, um, we're just starting to get renewable energy credits as part of that arrangement, which only makes it more valuable for us. Going forward, you know, a big, a big thing we're focusing on since I've been here and certainly going forward into the future is, uh, you know, considering other longer-term relationships or projects that would enhance efforts that we are making toward uh, decarbonization. We're, we're taking a look. There's some offshore wind projects being developed, you know, off our coasts and seeing if they're going to make sense for us. We're keeping an eye on the long-term plans of the operators of nuclear plants in our region as they seek to kind of maybe create some space for nuclear in the long-term discussion around uh, decarbonization. We expect to issue an RFP at some point this year for various potential uh, battery projects. And uh, again, we continue to actively pursue enhancements or grant money or just new projects generally that go along the lines of you know, beneficial electrification offerings, things like um, converting heat pumps or electric vehicles and charging stations, uh, residential solar, things like that. So kind of looking at all the above and you know, whatever we can reasonably do to cost effectively achieve some of our goals and maybe reduce our carbon footprint. Dave, so just to wrap up our conversation, you know, we're, we're obviously at the start of 2023. So I, I want to just take this opportunity and, and get your sense of, you know, what you see as the key challenges and opportunities for CMEC as we start the new year. Well, here in Connecticut, our members are working to determine how best to approach the decarbonization goals that um, our state is seeking to advance and, and accomplish. Back in 2019, our governor issued an executive order with a goal of, of achieving a carbon-free electric sector in our state by 2040. And uh, the state legislature actually codified that um, just last year. So, you know, 2040 in some respects is, is a long time from now, but in a sense, it, it feels like tomorrow. Um, yeah. There's some of us who are right. facing this challenge. You know, we are approaching this, you know, first of all, by forcing ourselves to spend the time to um, draft essentially a written decarbonization policy that'll kind of help us organize our thoughts and our approach as we consider, you know, near-term and longer-term efforts that we can take to kind of cost-effectively achieve some decarbonization goals, which, you know, is certainly a challenge when you're in a, you're part of a grid that's interconnecting six states who all um, are working toward similar goals in that regard, but who have different sets of rules, you know, different timelines, different political climates, and different mm -hmm. practical constraints. So again, it's kind of a challenge and an opportunity just determining how best to do that. And I think parallel to that is the challenges that we face and, and probably many that are situated in RTOs is what we believe is at least a need for some wholesale market reform that would allow um, a lot of this to occur under a much more or at least hopefully predictable path and timeline. You know, our regional transmission organization, the ISO New England, was formed, you know, quite a long time ago. And at the time, you know, its fundamental rules and premises were based on a very different set of underlying sort of principles and goals than, than what we have today and really dates back to a fundamentally different era. And so 
when you have capacity markets that have rules and pricing mechanisms that don't really reflect some of the the consumer preferences and practical differences between you know different types of generation resources, the fuel they use, how often they can run, and how reliable and resilient they are, and you add that to challenges for siting, you know, and interconnecting and equitably, you know, pricing out the new types of generation resources that are required in order to you know even get close to achieving decarbonization. It becomes a big challenge, and so what we're trying to do is work really collectively with our public power brethren in New England and also on our own behalf and on behalf of our members and, and their communities to work together to really make sure that what, whatever final goals and, and uh, pathways are, create, are, are legislated or, or created or self-imposed that they, they really make sense in light of the realities you know, on the ground and in the market. And you know, ultimately we're just trying to find a way to kind of responsibly and cost-effectively address climate change on behalf of our members and their ultimate consumers, it's a it's a huge problem that we can all you know we all need to do our part on. While we also maintain though our focus on kind of the core business of providing safe, reliable, and low cost um, wholesale power. So I think a, a big first step in that is making sure that the market rules make sense just based on the realities of today in general, but then also specific to I guess our statewide or just regional really approach to decarbonization. I think that's a big part of the, you know, the kind of, again, challenges or opportunities that we're facing. Another one I would just mention that, again, is probably common throughout public power is continuing to ensure that we have, you know, the right people in the right seats as, you know, the bus that is CMEC kind of moves down this, this pathway toward the future, attracting and, and retaining the right staff and, and growing them accordingly has always been a challenge. And I think it's even maybe a little bit more of a challenge given some of the the, the new issues and, and opportunities that employers and employees are facing now that we're a couple of years into, into the pandemic. So those are the things that are kind of front of mind as, as my staff and I and our board you know, head into 2023. And then just circling back to ISO New England, and, and as you mentioned, which you called for the, you know, you said that there's a need for some wholesale market reform. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, one, one of the things that you were saying was that it's important in the case of Connecticut, that lawmakers there and, and regulators to, to a large degree, they need to communicate with ISO New England as, as these, these rules uh, or goals are implemented. Yeah. And, and they've done a good job of that. You know, the okay. governors of the six states in, in New England have really worked together well and, and largely led by um, the, the Connecticut um, delegation and um, in, in working together and saying, look, you know, we need to approach this together. We're all part of this same region. And, you know, when you, when you kind of back away far enough, you realize that, you know, it's really a very small piece of the national and international puzzle as it relates to decarbonization. Um, so we've been spending a lot of time and plan on doing so in the near future here of just making sure that our our delegation is is educated and that they use us as a resource for these types of issues. Um, you know, the energy industry, like like many others, I'm sure, is is very complex. It's um, not always intuitive. And in my experience, I think it takes a lot of uh, time just kind of letting it all sink in. and it, it's something that, if, if you're maybe a new legislator or a new regulator, don't have a lot of experience, it's good to draw on on public power or or any other industry professionals who can provide that, and and you know also provide their their two cents maybe on the best direction forward. But we have a good history of working um, again with with um, the rest of the public power community in New England, for the most part, speaking with a unified voice and making sure that our interests are heard. 
because they're they're parallel to but not always 100% consistent with the interests of you know the other players in the energy industry at large. And one other question occurred to me um, with respect to to the carbon free electric goal by 2040. You know, there's been other parts of the country where, you know, I think like in California, for example, nuclear power is getting a second look in, in, in the wake of, you know, efforts to meet decarbonization goals. Is there, in, in terms of New England, do you have any sense of, of the the significance of nuclear power helping to meet those, the decarb goals? I, I do. I, I do have a general sense. Um, you know, there is a pretty strong presence of, of nuclear power in, in New England. You know, there like in most other regions, there's nothing of, of utility scale that's been right. proposed or constructed at this time. But there have been some very strong efforts to maintain the, the nuclear resources that are in the ground and that have been operating you know, for, for decades, providing carbon-free energy to the grid. And um, I, I think the, the powers that be, if you will, within New England, you know, absolutely recognize the importance of maintaining existing nuclear resources, if nothing else, as a bridge to 2040 and potentially beyond. Because I think it's 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 been well stated throughout the industry that it's gonna, it's going to take a lot of planning and effort to get there, and a lot of time to build out not just the transmission and, and the interconnection facilities, but just uh, you know the, the generation facilities themselves. And as they get further and further removed from the load that they have to serve, you know, maintaining these large and very reliable baseload resources such as nuclear becomes a necessity if we're going to again maintain reliability and resource adequacy between now and the time that we are actually able to achieve, you know, a carbon-free grid, whatever that might look like at the time. Dave, thanks again so much for for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a great conversation and I would love to have you back uh, on the podcast uh, perhaps sometime next year. I'd be happy to do it anytime. I appreciate your time. Terrific. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which is produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Schimpoli, and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power. 